This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Amanda Becker is a veteran political journalist. The Washington correspondent for the 19th News has covered a variety of beats here in the swamp over the last decade plus for her current newsroom, as well as Reuters, and once upon a time for Roll Call as part of its WASTA team. More on that later. She's about to move to the Boston area to start one of journalism's most prestigious fellowships, the Neiman, and I was able to convince her to continue procrastinating, packing up all of her stuff to discuss her reflections on the job of political reporting, what she hopes to get out of her fellowship, and any other odds and ends at this inflection point for her career, life, the universe, and everything. Amanda Becker, welcome back to Political Theater. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. So when we met each other, uh, Amanda, it is, it's it's always strange to say your first name because it's always just Becker for the most part. <laughs> so I'm probably going to slip call, into that. Just call me Becker. <laughs> uh, when we first met, you were at Roll Call uh, already. I had just started. Uh, this was June, I believe, uh, 2011. And you were part of the, the WASTA team at Roll Call, which was headed up by Paul Singer, our, uh, our colleague, who is also in the Boston area. I'm sure that there will be reunion drinks at some point. You had had you know, jobs here and there in journalism, but this is really where everything starts to get into a groove for you uh, and I think is a good starting point. First, just explain what, what we mean when we say WASTA. <laughs> Yeah, so um, Paul came up with that word. It's uh, well, he didn't come up with the word, but he named the team that. Um, I forget which language it is. Do you remember? But I know the meaning of the word, loosely translated into English, is kind of influence and power. Right, right, and, and it, I think that he brought that back from a trip that they took to the Middle East, and I'm and I'm not exactly sure what you know language or part of a dialect or so forth. But it, yeah, it loosely translates as. You know, if you if you're yielding influence, you you have wasta, uh, and I think that it was some of it. He he learned it uh, when he was shopping, you know, at a bazaar or something like that. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember a story about rugs because I remember seeing a rug that he bought on that trip at his apartment, um, hanging on the wall. Um, yeah, I, I still have my wasta T-shirt, so I hope that Paul does as well. And I actually packed it in my box for Boston. Um, so whenever I see Paul Singer up in Boston, um, maybe he won't get a heads up from this podcast, but uh, I will be wearing my Wasta t-shirt. Um, yeah, I had started a couple of months before you, Jason. I think it was April of that year. I had been at the Post for about a year covering lobbying and local business. And, you know, I wanted to get into something that was more accountability focused than business focused. And so I actually met Paul when I was taking a group of students from my grad school, uh, USC, on tours throughout Washington while they were here and met Paul. And um, at the time, um, a reporter was leaving to move to Colorado, who he'd been working with, Jennifer Yakman. And mm-hmm. at the end of the tour, he said, you know, what? I feel like we would get along. Um, do you want to apply for this job? And I was like, Okay. Um, <laughs> never met him before until that day. And then so I ended up coming over to Roll Call and stayed there for about two years. He unfortunately left before me and they were starting to kind of disband the team. But um, 
yeah, it was a really fun couple of years on Team Wasta at Roll Call. And, you know, roughly, you know, you, you had, you know, a hand, handful of folks, you know, you had uh, people who focused on campaign finance, people who focused on lobbying. Uh, and your beat was, you know, really like more about ethics, the ethics committees, accountability, financial disclosures for for members of Congress and and all the ways that basically a lot of malfeasance can can happen uh, with money being used and abused uh, by members of Congress, their staff or, or people trying to influence them. Yeah, so it was a lot of, at this point, a lot of the records still weren't online, which is wild to think about. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. We would actually go and get the books of all of the expenses um, of all the congressional offices and look through them for stories. I also wrote a lot about, um, I believe it was in 2007 when they passed a lot of the ethics reforms for Congress. I'm getting a little rusty on my ethics stuff, but I think it was 2007. Um But by 2010, they'd already figured out ways around it. So I was writing a lot about privately funded travel, these junkets that they tried to get rid of and that were still happening, essentially. And after after a couple of years of document dives and also working on the side a little bit for the Herd on the Hill section uh, with our friends Netta Simnani and, and Warren Rojas, you departed for Reuters and and you were there for a while until you know twenty twenty uh, when when you went over to the nineteenth as part of its its big launch. Yeah, so I was at Reuters about seven and a half years which seems like a lifetime in journalism years. <laughs> you, you move around a lot, especially at the beginning, the first half of your career. Um, yeah, so I actually originally went over to Reuters to write about labor policy. Um, and it just so happened it was at like a really active time for the NLRB and the Supreme Court had a lot of cases that were related to labor. Management there was very interested in stories about organized labor because Reuters had a very strong union. Um, so even though most of my stuff was supposed to be behind, be behind a paywall, I ended up getting a lot of stories out on the main wire um, because there was just a lot of intense interest around it. It was when like it was when the fight for fifteen was starting and McDonald's was organizing and a lot of that stuff was going on. After a couple of years of that, I decided I just wanted to broaden out a little bit. I covered Congress really briefly while I waited for them to kind of put together the 2016 team. And I covered Clinton for two years. And true story, I was actually not supposed to be the primary Clinton reporter for Reuters, except that the day before we found out that Clinton was going to be announcing and someone had to fly to Iowa because she was headed there in her Scooby van, the reporter who was supposed to be the main reporter told editors that they not only didn't have a driver's license, they actually had never had a driver's license and never learned how to drive. <laughs> and this person is, is not from the United States. And they I guess they thought they would be able to taxi an Uber around Iowa. Um, <laughs> they were mistaken. Um, so I became the, the lead Clinton reporter for the next two years. And, you know, this... To to say that this election sort of defined, you know, not not just your career at least at the, at least that that point, but a lot of people's careers is maybe like one of the bigger understatements. I mean, this this every election is important, but this this election truly showed where we were going, that we're, where we currently are with threats of political violence, a lot of, you know, sort of misogyny that had been a little bit below the surface that was just like above the surface, you know, throughout that that race. And just the ascendancy of Donald Trump as the Republican nominee showed this sort of new direction that we were going. I mean, and, and it just, it. I mean, to be 
to say that this, you know, sort of redefined the game, it's hard to imagine where, like, where we were, you know, like covering, like, the Romney Obama race and how that feels like a million years ago compared to 2016. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 2016 feels like a million years ago. So I think that might be two million years ago. I, I like to say um, the 2016 election took the final years of my youth. Um, I went into it as a young person and came out an old person. Um, it, it was two years that felt like at least five. And yeah, I mean, it's it. I do think it completely changed the trajectory of our politics and my career. I mean, I'm a political reporter now. I, I wasn't a political reporter before that um, in like the classic sense. You know, I wasn't out on the campaign trail covering presidential elections and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I, I was like, I'll try this once. And everyone said, once you do it once, you're just going to be a campaign reporter for the rest of your life and you're going to cover every election. And they, they may be right because I ended up covering 2020, um, the start of it for Reuters. And then I came over to the 19th and I'm still a campaign reporter to this day. And actually, a lot of what I plan to study um, when I'm doing the Neiman is related to things that started in 2015 and in 2016. Um, the rise kind of of QAnon and dis and misinformation, um, bots, troll farms, all those things that we see now, um, that's going to be kind of the basis of what I'm working on over the next nine months. And also, I mean, when you were covering the 2020 election, you were on the the bus, you know, with the, the Harris campaign before she pulled out and certainly, you know, like a little bit before she was tapped to be the uh, vice presidential nominee under under Joe Biden. And, and it's again, you know, you were you you already had all these all this knowledge of her. You know, I mean, you had the background as a congressional reporter, so you knew what people do, what senators do and how they approach certain things. And when you went to the 19th, you were able to, it, it, it's interesting because it's like the, the 19th is a, is a sort of a new, almost a new journalism sort of facet. It's a, it's a nonprofit. It's very focused on gender and the culture and politics and policy of that. But you've been able to broaden a lot of the, of what you've covered at the 19th, it seems compared to being a political reporter. I mean, you, there, you, you're still a political reporter, you're still a campaign reporter, but you know, today you have a story in the 19th about Liz Cheney, uh, uh, you know, who, who has a primary on, on Tuesday and you've been able to do these very deep dives on people like Elizabeth Warren. What was that like when you started at the 19th, you know, this was, you took a sort of a flyer on it cause it was a startup. What was, mm-hmm. what was, what was it like and how did you evolve, you know, in your approach to reporting on politics? Yeah, I mean, so I ended up at the 19th kind of for the same reasons the founders started the 19th. Um, The founders, Emily Ramshaw and Amanda Zamora, were at the Texas Tribune, which is another nonprofit model, um, during the 2016 election. And then Emily Ramshaw was on parental leave when she had a baby for the tail end of that uh, election. And she was watching, you know, the first woman who's a major party nominee and how she was being covered and thinking... (laughs) there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, we're, our, our profession is kind of uh, failing right now. And I agreed with that wholeheartedly. I mean, there were obviously exceptions, but overall I thought the coverage of Clinton was sexist and reductive in a lot of ways. And we just really weren't prepared to meet the moment in terms of covering her or covering Donald Trump. I mean, journalists completely missed Donald Trump's rise for the most part. And, you know, at least my newsroom and a lot of newsrooms had made our assignments for after the election based on the idea that they all thought Clinton was going to win. And so when Emily and Amanda started this, I read about it and I was, you know, in the midst of covering this, you know, 
next election where there were all these women, more women than ever before. Um, and I not only was on the Kamala bus, but I was on the Elizabeth Warren bus. I was on the Amy Klobuchar bus. I was on the Kirsten Gillibrand bus. And, you know, I was on the buses of these women who one by one were either dropping out or getting knocked out. And so when I saw the 19th announce in January of 2020, I immediately emailed the um, editor-in-chief, Andrea, at that time, Valdez, who's now at the Atlantic. And I said, I want to work for you. Like, what do I need to give you to, to be able to work for you? And I just started stalking them, basically, and <laughs> um, ended up being the first editorial hire outside of the founders. So the first person with a reporter title. Because the other person who was a reporter was Erin Haynes, but she technically, uh, it, her title's uh, uh, editor. So, yeah, so I came over to the 19th. I, I wanted to do things differently, just like Emily did. And I felt like it was really hard to get stories. You know, there are a lot of obstacles for women in politics. And in a lot of newsrooms, almost to get a story out, you have to prove that that person's probably going to win. Otherwise, editors don't care about it. And so it's like this, this cycle of, perpetuation where, you know, women are already up against more obstacles and then they can't get coverage. So then they do even worse and it just kind of feeds in itself. So our standards for stories are, are we come at it from a completely different place. We're interested in telling stories about gender and how that impacts politics and policy. So whether that's, you know, just what it means to be a woman leader like Elizabeth Warren, uh, how people's gender identities and what they kind of their lived experiences, how they bring that to the job. So, you know, it's been an, a really interesting switch too, just from the style of a wire to a place where I can do, you know, 5,000 word um, magazine length pieces and, you know, look at things that are a little bit edgier, like toxic masculinity and, um, you know, sexist ads that are run by um, political entities. Um, so it's, it's been a really interesting couple of years. And, Placing yourself back, you know, in the mid 2000s, uh, we all go into journalism for different reasons, but it's usually along the lines of like, we have an idea of what we want to do. We want to be a part of, you know, transparency. We want to be a part of covering our communities. We feel strongly about politics, about the efficacy of it. You know, you you move from California, you know, you're, you're from the Midwest, you moved to California for grad school, you moved to, to DC, you've got family members in the press, a lot of your friends uh, are members of the press. Is this anywhere near what you thought it would be like, you know, 12, 15 years later, when, when you when you sort of started walking down this path? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I graduated from grad school in 2008. USC, right? Yeah, USC. Mm -hmm. So I was out in California. I had moved to California with the idea that um, there were actually really strong regional newspapers out there at the time, and that I would be able to stay on the West Coast. So I moved to California thinking that that was my new home. Of course, there was an economic crash while I was in grad school. Um, NPR West closed its Western Bureau in LA. Um, the LA Times shut about 400 jobs while I was in grad school. Um, the market in LA and Southern California generally was flooded with people who were a lot more experienced than me. And, you know, I took my very first job out there at a legal newspaper, but I quickly realized in order to have any job mobility with opportunities, I was going to have to move. So, 
I actually took a fellowship in D.C. at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which was a year-long commitment as a way to kind of get myself geographically to D.C. and look for a job for after that. And that's how I ended up doing the work for The Washington Post. So I spent that year there. You know, I did political work in grad school. I um, actually covered the 2008 election through a a night-funded fellowship at USC and did some stories for NPR based out of Nevada for that election. I still don't think I realized at that point I was going, I'm an accidental political reporter. I, I, I never really thought this like would be my bread and butter. I, I'm not a horse race person. Um, I actually have a pretty big distaste for politics. A lot of it irritates me. And maybe that makes me a better political reporter. I don't know, but I don't get as much amusement out of the um, kind of who's up, who's down type coverage that you see a lot of places. So yeah, I don't I don't know that I could have predicted. I mean, even when I moved to DC, I thought I would be here just to ride out the the downturn and then I would end up back on the West Coast somewhere. But you know, here we are 13 years later and I'm leaving for Boston, but probably only temporarily. So I, I, I may be a Washington lifer, but yeah, I don't think I ever could have predicted where I would be now 15 years ago. And I think coming at it from that angle too, of like, you you hadn't counted on being a political reporter. I think, you know, one of the things that's always impressed me about either working with you or watching you work, because, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when you've been in Iowa, like, uh, you know, I will be there on a reporting trip myself for say the 2016 caucuses or, you know, like we, we have run into each other a lot at conventions and I've seen you work. And one of the things that I've always thought distinguishes the way that you approach your job is that yes, you do need to talk to the most powerful people. You need to talk to the Elizabeth Warrens. You need to talk to the Hillary Clintons. Um, and, and they talk to you and they, and you get good stuff from them, but you're also able to contextualize it because you have a slightly outsider mentality. And also you're not afraid to knock on people's doors. You know, like you're not afraid to talk to people in parking lots at Walmart and get a sense of what is happening outside of people who, you know, wake up in the morning and they just want to see the latest tracking polls. And I think that if anything, you know, like the, what I try to tell, you know, some, you know, reporters in, in my own newsroom who are like looking for advice, if they, if they're, so uh, careless as to ask me for advice <laughs> uh, is is that you have to have a lot of interests, you know, to make yourself a really distinguished reporter. You have to be interested in more than just politics to cover politics, because politics doesn't make any sense if it doesn't take into account the people who are involved in it. And not everybody who's involved in it is just a junkie. So yeah. I think that that's I mean, that that's what I've seen, you know, like you excel in is that. You know, you're the, the way that you reported also just in 2018, you know, when, when you when you were looking at some of the things that would lead up to the uh, the Democrats taking the House uh, that year. I mean, you, you like the concerns were different, you know, among voters, among people who, who actually vote, not just people who are consultants in Washington. And I think that that's it can be exhausting, but it's also super important. I mean, a part part of the story. Well, thank you. I consider that a great compliment. And um, that's great advice you're giving people if if they are so careless as to ask <laughs> you for it. I'm interested in people. So that's how I come at politics. I'm interested in why people do what they want to do and how they make the decisions they make. Now, some people in politics, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them seem to be motivated by just a sheer want and desire for power. 
that to me is actually not very interesting. It's, it's very straightforward. It's the people who go into politics for other reasons that interest me, and it's the voters, and it's the people working for the people who are in politics and why they're doing it. And, you know, because, you know, to want to be powerful or to want to have proximity to power is very straight. That's a very straightforward mindset to me. I do literally knock on doors. I do stand in Walmart parking lots, grocery store parking lots. I remember a trip to Michigan two summers ago um, in 2020, height of the pandemic. Nobody was vaccinated yet. I rented a car and drove to Michigan rather than fly because I didn't want to expose myself. I'm fully masked. Um, Walking up, I was trying to find women who voted for Trump in 2016 who were still deciding in 2020. So I was like, where can I find women, suburban women outside Detroit, kind of in this swing county outside Detroit? Where can I find them? I went to a park and I literally, I, it had, I had to be so creepy because, you know, normally if you're walking up to a stranger, I smile, I have my press credential. I didn't even have a press credential because the 19th was brand new and we hadn't made any yet and Congress was closed, so I couldn't get a new one. So I'm literally walking up to pe- strangers in a park with a mask on being like, hey, <laughs> did you like Donald Trump last time? <laughs> and if they said, yeah, then we'd stop and talk. One thing that is, has been interesting is actually women like to talk about politics a lot less than than men. Um, so even getting them to have conversations is more difficult. But yeah, I mean, that was a, literally I spent three hours in a park walking up to every person who was there who was a woman and asking them who they voted for in 2016 and who they planned on voting for in 2020. And I got some really good interviews. I mean, some of them are duds, but you get some good ones too. I mean, not every trip is a success. I tried to do the same thing outside Seattle, south of Seattle a couple of weeks ago. I had a very small amount of time. I was actually there to follow around Senator Murray, um, but I wanted to go to Butler's district to see like what was going on down there. Her district borders Oregon. So I ended up getting, you know, a bunch of people who weren't even in her district that I was stopping on the street. I was actually in front of a hardware store. So that one wasn't as fruitful, but it does pan out sometimes. Um, it, it just, you have to put a lot of work in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And speaking of putting in a lot of work, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of my favorite collaborations with you, which was um, the Where Roll Call Dares feature where we waited in line at Georgetown Cupcake. Did you I hate cupcakes? Which <laughs> not in advance. You should mention that in the caveat. Uh, Amanda Becker hates cupcakes, but this was one of those things that I uh, again we we you were already at Reuters, but for some reason you agreed to accompany me on a story where we waited in line to see if if it was worth it to get a cupcake at Georgetown Cupcakes, and it's it's still living there. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, the story. Uh, it it was uh, an epic collaboration. I gotta say, I could, it, it would not have been the same without. Was that summer? I remember it being very hot. It was. It was. Uh, I, I, it might have. I can't remember the exact time. I can. I can check the date. But it was in 2014. Yeah, it was. It was pretty hot. And and luckily we had a, another uh, another friend who lived in the area who invited us back after we got our cupcakes for gin and tonics. Well, actually, he originally was going to bring us umbrellas because we were standing in the rain. Yes. So I not, I love Jason so much. I stood in the rain to get a dessert that I don't like to eat as an experiment for his story. 
that's that's dedication to the craft. By the way, it was it was more than fifty minutes, if I recall. It was fifty fifty six fifty seven minutes just to get a, a cupcake and the scorn uh, of of several people who drove by, <laughs> wondering who why would hundreds of people stand in line for a cupcake at Georgetown Cupcake? It's still a mystery. Which, if I hadn't been there with you, I would have been the person driving by. <laughs> yes. Anything, anything else? Uh, you know, before before you get back to packing. <laughs> oh, I mean. You got a little while. You got a little. Please ask me more questions, Jason, because I don't want to go back and pack. <laughs> I will miss you here in town, but I know that our professional relationship and our friendship has has endured through Georgetown Cupcake and the uh, political conventions of 2016 and a pandemic. So, Iowa caucuses. Iowa caucuses. Um, we, we always, yeah, they're they're. It's either extreme heat, extreme cold, or extreme pastries. I had no idea being a political reporter was so. Tax, physically taxing and you are exposed to such extreme environments. And I continually make the, the case that we deserve hazard pay, but so far no editor has taken me up on it. The enduring uh, image I have from the Iowa caucuses was I mean, in 2016, you know, was that one, we got snowed in, right? Um, the, the night of several people were trying to get out right after the caucuses and they couldn't because of the snow started. And then when I finally did get to the airport, the, uh, the little machines that give you your parking ticket, they had coats on. It was so cold that machines <laughs> at the airport needed coats. Uh, so <laughs> but these are these are things that I did not did not anticipate uh, when I was growing up in Arizona. Well, Becker, thank you so much. We'll sign off and you can get back to convincing Bertie and Winnie, your cats, that uh, everything's going to be okay in the move. Uh, <laughs> they're they're and, very upset by all, <laughs> all of the boxes and the mess, I got to say. But perhaps their their roof won't be falling in uh, from uh, from plumbing issues with, with your yes, apartment. Jason is referencing a recent flood that has really complicated my, my move. <laughs> but again, all the, all the best. Can't wait to see what comes out of the fellowship and your future. Thank you so much, Jason. If anyone listening has ideas about how to uh, track and address dis and misinformation in the political sphere, I'm easily findable on the internet. <laughs> Thanks again for listening.